listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. A casual reading of Scripture will not result in a deep understanding of God. See, if you're consistently shallow in God's Word, if you don't have a deep pursuit of God as evidenced by a deep study and meditation on the Scriptures, the Word of God, your understanding of God is going to be affected significantly. What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. And beliefs about God are determined in proportion to our understanding of God's Word, the Bible. As our Bible reading goes, so goes our understanding of God. And as our understanding of God goes, so goes everything. This is illustrated in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 27. There came to him, that means Jesus, there came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Now, we'll find out that one of the reasons why they're called Sadducees is because they were sad, you see. Anybody who doesn't believe in the resurrection has to be sad, you see. And that's these guys. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection. And they asked him, they asked Jesus a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And here's the situation that the Sadducees present to Jesus. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. And the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he called the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him a question. If we were to look at Matthew 22, verse 30, in the parallel account here, it says that they were all, that word is used again, they were all astonished. They were all astonished. And we have two enemies clashing at the end of this passage, the scribes and the Sadducees. They were continually clashing with each other. You know that statement, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Here's a moment where the scribes, for a moment, become the friend of Jesus because they hated the Sadducees so much. You know, we read a passage of Scripture like this, okay, well, the resurrection from the dead. That seems to be clear. And then we move on. And if we do that, if that's the extent of our reading of this passage of Scripture, we miss deep truths about God that by the time we're done, you'll say, oh my goodness, I need to read the Bible more attentively. I need to get a steady diet 
in the word of God. Notice how this whole thing begins. They came to him, some Sadducees, those who denied that there's a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. This is the situation here. Now, what you have to understand in this particular story is its context. The context means everything. And this takes its place in the collection of stories that Luke has presented in his gospel where the theme is authority. If you've been following us for any length of time, you understand that we've been talking about the authority of Jesus consistently in our most recent times together. And this is the context of this particular passage. The Sadducees were actually questioning Jesus' authority. We cannot hear the sarcasm in their voices, but it is there. Look at this. Look at how they address him in verse 28. They asked him a question saying, teacher. And what they're really doing is saying, okay, if you're really a teacher, we want to challenge your teaching. We want to challenge your authority in regard to this issue of the resurrection. See, the Sadducees held to a strict interpretation of the law, and since the resurrection from the dead was not overtly taught by Moses. What do I mean by overtly? Moses did not present somebody dying and then raising from the dead. It's not something that's presented in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch at least from the human perspective. Now, Jesus sets them straight and helps us understand, we'll get to this in a moment, that it's not just what is literally written in the Word of God, it is the way we interpret the Word of God that makes all the difference. And the Sadducees, one of the reasons why they were sad, you see, is because they focused so much on the letter of the law, the literal interpretation of the law, that they couldn't get the spirit of the law. And aren't you thankful that that does not happen today in the body of Christ, in the church? I'm being intentionally sarcastic when I say that. Sadducees would be proud of me to throw in a little bit of sarcasm, the way they were being sarcastic with Jesus. So they're saying, hey, quote unquote, teacher, hey, teach. Let's talk about this resurrection thing that we've been hearing you talk about all the time, and your disciples will start to talk about this resurrection, and... Let's talk about this since you want to teach from the law, the lawgiver Moses, the ultimate lawgiver in the Old Testament. Moses didn't teach about the resurrection. So here's the situation seven brothers, each one of them dies after being the first one being married to a woman. And Deuteronomy chapter 25, which came from Moses, says that each brother is now obligated to fulfill his duty according to the law and provide children so that that generation continues, that there are heirs to the first original brother. So this resurrection thing, so who are all these men going to be married to? Who is this woman going to be married to? The first one or the second one, the fifth one, the seventh one? Hey, teacher, how do you like them apples? What are you going to do with this stuff from Moses? And we hear their sarcasm in verse 33. In the quote-unquote resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? 
for the seven had her as wife. Can you hear now some of the sarcasm in their question? If you were a Sadducee, walking around with your head down all the time because there's no afterlife, no resurrection, there were no eternal consequences for the deeds that you did in this world, which Jesus clearly taught there is an afterlife and we will give an account in the life to come. So the Sadducees are calling this into question and saying, hey, you're supposed to be a teacher, You're supposed to be expounding upon the lawgiver, the original teacher, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses. So in this thing that you keep bringing up, the resurrection, it doesn't work. It creates a huge problem. Can't you see? (laughs) Can't you see? Now we'd like to see how you get yourself out of this one. Words take their place in phrases. Phrases make up sentences. Sentences make up paragraphs. Paragraphs make up chapters. Chapters make up books. And we have 66 of them in the Bible. And so what we have to understand here is the context of what Jesus is saying here and the context of the the Sadducees' behavior. They are calling into question Jesus' authority as the teacher of teachers, as the interpreter of interpreters. That's why Luke presents this particular teaching on the heels of the other teachings that deal with the authority of Jesus being called into question. It shouldn't surprise us. What we should understand, what any student of Scripture who's not a casual student of Scripture, but somebody who's a disciple, so you can't follow a God you don't know. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you want to follow God, you've got to be a student of God's Word. Because your ability to follow God, your ability to follow God, my ability to follow God, comes in direct proportion as an overflow of knowing God's Word. Because we cannot follow a God we do not know. And so they're calling into question Jesus' authority as a teacher of teachers, And Jesus demonstrates his authority flawlessly. You've got to love Jesus even if you start off not loving Jesus. By the time you're done really studying the scriptures, really meditating on the gospels, you've got to love Jesus because here they're questioning his authority. And the irony is that Jesus is given a royal opportunity. They're lobbing him a huge meatball or a softball. And Jesus takes the opportunity to again confound them and demonstrate that he does have the authority. This is why they're astonished at his teaching. And so this scenario is painted and Jesus with the seven brothers and the one wife is all explained here. And then Jesus says in verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Now, Matthew chapter 22 in verse 29. Let's look there for a moment because this is the parallel passage. And this is how we get a fuller understanding of all these different situations uh, that are related by all of the gospel writers. The, we call the synoptic gospels. Matthew, 
Mark, and Luke. John is not considered one of the parallel or synoptic gospels because he presents things that aren't necessarily in the other three. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the parallel gospel accounts, each give a little bit of a different flavor. And that's one of the evidences that we have to the credibility of the Bible, because instead of them saying exactly the same thing, each one presents a little bit of a nuance, and it's through reading each one of them and comparing them that we get the fuller picture. See, if you were going to make something up about the Bible, if you were going to make up the biblical account, you would have each one of these books say exactly the same thing, because you would be afraid of contradictions, you would be afraid afraid of things not jiving, be a very dangerous thing to have a writer over in this region of the world begin to write an account of the life of Jesus, not knowing that a writer in that part of the world was writing an account of Jesus, not knowing that a writer in another part of the world was writing an account of Jesus, and we'd all have to (gasps) hold our breath and hope out, and we'd have to hope that when we sit down and compare all of these accounts that they wouldn't contradict each other. And yet it's another example of how the Bible is such a book that man wouldn't write if he could, couldn't write if he would, because when we compare the gospel accounts, we see that they don't contradict each other, they actually complement each other. It's completely counterintuitive to the way that you and I would do if we were conspiring to make up accounts of the life of some miracle worker and make sure that they were consistent. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so in this parallel account that is similar but not verbatim the same, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, the same account, Jesus answered the Sadducees. Now you have to understand, these guys would have walked away even more sad than they were in the beginning, the Sadducees, because they held to a strict interpretation of the law. Keep this in mind. They held to following the teachings of Moses to the letter. It was very, very important to them. And why was it important to them? Because they felt that that was the way that they could understand God. Now, they were right in part, but they were also wrong in a significant part, which we'll get to in a moment, and that is the interpretation of the Word of God, which is very important. But imagine that you are them, and you're holding the Old Testament law to that level, and you're touting yourself as an expert in that law, and you have disciples, people who are following you in your your interpretation of the law. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees, you could say that the Pharisees, they weren't fair, you see. They're the ones that conspire with Pilate. The leaders of the nation of Israel lie about Jesus and have him put to death. The Sadducees were at odds with the Pharisees. The Pharisees at odds with the Sadducees. And so these two groups competed against each other for disciples. They competed against each other for notoriety. The more disciples you have, the more notoriety you have, the more notoriety you have, the more power you have, the more power you have, the more influence you have, the bigger ego you have, and it's this vicious cycle. So imagine if you are a Sadducee. 
And you heard Jesus say these words in Matthew twenty two twenty nine. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Oh, it just shot me in the heart. We know neither the scriptures. Are you kidding me? We're the Sadducees. What do you mean we don't know the scriptures? That's our whole reputation. That's our brand. That's the big word today, your brand. What is your brand? Well, the brand for the Sadducees was that they knew the scriptures and they had the best, the ultimate, the right interpretation of the scriptures, unlike those Pharisees. And Jesus, who has the authority, unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees who did not have the authority, exercises that authority and says, you are wrong because you don't know the scriptures that you have memorized and you don't know the power of God that is reflected in those scriptures that you think you know so well. Oh, gosh. If I was a Sadducee, I would be mad, you see. (laughs) There goes my brand. I mean, I'm going to have to have a Sunday morning, you know, first day of the Jewish calendar is Sunday, not Monday. I'm going to have to sit down with my marketing and my branding people, and we're going to have to go back to the drawing board about what it means to be a Sadducee. Because we just got our clocks cleaned by Jesus, the teacher who we were making fun of, the one who we were putting him in a position to demonstrate that he didn't have the authority. And he, he one-upped us again. You neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. And then Jesus begins to interpret the scriptures that they knew with the correct interpretation to show them that the resurrection actually was taught by Moses. It's there if only they had been open to the power of God. Now, before we get there, before we come down as being too harsh against the Sadducees, there's a little bit of Sadducee in every one of us. What do you mean, Mike? It's possible to study the Scriptures and not understand the gist of the Scriptures. It's possible to know the letter of the law and not understand the spirit of the law. It's possible to study the Bible and read the Bible and begin to lose sight of the power of God. That's the whole point of the Scriptures. The power of God. The glory of God. The whole point of the resurrection is that it's not what man does. It's what God does. And so that's the whole point that's being presented here. No, duh. You won't believe in the resurrection. You don't believe in the resurrection unless you believe in the power of God. And unless you understand that the purpose of the scriptures is to help us get a right understanding of God, to understand that God does the miraculous when mere mortals can't do the miraculous. Don't we understand that it's the whole story of the gospel that while you were a sinner, while I was still a sinner, while we were dead in our trespasses and our transgressions, deader than a doorknob, not even realizing. You understand, we weren't even aware of the fact that we were dead 
We were the walking dead, the original walking dead. We didn't even realize that we were dead in our transgressions and our sins, but God knew that we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. Ephesians chapter two, great passage to meditate on and to reflect upon. God knew that we were dead. God reached out for you and for me, saw our need when we thought we were needless. See, if you just think that you're a bad person, you have not gone far enough. If I just think that I'm a bad person apart from Jesus, that's not far enough. I'm a dead person without Jesus. You're a dead person without Jesus. The whole point of the Bible is the power of God. You know, somebody said to me yesterday, we had a men's gathering with about 200 men, and they came up to me afterward and asked a very legitimate question. I'm sure you've asked this, because I was talking about yesterday how we need to rise up and be the change that we know needs to happen. We need to stop waiting for somebody else to lead the way and be the solution to the problems we see. And they came up and they said, you know, I'm having a hard time reconciling since we know how things end up in the Bible how the world ends in a very bad place before the return of Jesus when it becomes a good place with the new kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. I'm having a very hard time doing what's right now and being motivated to do what's right since it seems anticlimactic. And I said, you don't understand. And I don't understand whether we are at one minute to midnight or several hours from midnight. See, if we serve God and honor God only because of where we think we are in the prophetic time clock, we've lost sight of the worthiness of God. It's always in fashion, it's always in season, it's always appropriate, it's always proper, it's always God honoring to honor God. And you and I always honor God when we are salt and light. Trust God and leave the prophetic time clock to him. 70 years ago, this world was in a very difficult place with something called World War II. It wasn't supposed to happen because World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars. And there were notorious things done by notorious evil people. And people thought, surely, it was the end of ages. It was the end of all things, and here we are 70 years after. What if people, during World War II, laid down and just let the Germans and the Italians and the Japanese just run right over us. You know what's happened since World War II and now in the evangelical community? We've lost sight of this God that we say we want to glorify and we want to honor him. And prophecy has replaced the prophet, Jesus. And I don't mean prophet in a belittling way at all. Deuteronomy chapter 18 talks about God sending a prophet like Moses, and that is Jesus. Jesus, we know, is more than a prophet. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. So if anybody 
takes an excerpt of what I just said and tries to cut it and say that I'm preaching heresy, shame on you, the truth's not in you because you're a liar and you're a deceiver. But see, what's happened in the evangelical community is we're all about the Bible and we've lost sight of the power of God. We could be just like the Sadducees, being familiar with the Old Testament, being familiar even with the New Testament as New Testament believers, as Christians, and begin worshiping the Bible instead of the God who gave us the Bible. And the Sadducees, this this had happened to them, they became so academically astute when it came to the study of God's Word that they were spiritually knuckleheads. They did not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. You've got a situation in your life, and if you don't have it now, it's coming, where your back is going to be against the wall. It's not going to be humanly possible to succeed in that situation. I guarantee you, you're either in it now or it's coming on the horizon. It's called life outside of Eden. It will happen to you. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ or you're not not a follower of Jesus Christ, it happens to all of us. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have something that someone who's not following Jesus Christ does not enjoy. You have a God who is alive. You have a God who does the miraculous. You have a God who does the supernatural. You have a God who has the authority. You have a God who has the power. You have a God who's able to take the minority and turn it into a majority. You have a God who's able to take the I don't know where to go and part the Red Sea and lead you right through it. Your hope is not in the situation. See, our hope, we get ourselves into trouble. I got myself into trouble trying to figure out God and thinking that God is going to do things the way that I think he's going to do them. No, that's always dangerous ground. It doesn't matter whether God does it your way or my way. All that matters is that God is doing it. And he is the God of power. That's the whole point of the Bible, to demonstrate to us that he is the God of the living, not the dead. He consistently takes things that shouldn't be and turns them into something that are something that's beautiful. He continually takes the minority and impacts the majority. He continually works through an underdog. Haven't you noticed that? Whether it's David and Goliath, fill in the blank story after story in the Bible of God's people called by God to follow God and spread his kingdom often have their backs up against the wall because it's not in their own power or their own strength. Isn't there a verse somewhere that says not by power and not by strength? And yet we forget. And oh, how it would have stung those Sadducees to hear Jesus say those three words in the English language. You are wrong. 
In fact, you don't know the scriptures. And what's worse, you don't understand that the purpose of the scriptures is to help you understand the power of God. Uh, Where do you go with that? I'll tell you where you go with that. You let Jesus interpret the rest of the story. So in Luke chapter 20, Jesus said to them in verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. In other words, marriage is for this life. Until death do you part. And therefore, we have an understanding of marriage that's presented in Ephesians, for example, that the purpose of earthly marriage between one man and one woman, it's the only example given anywhere in the Scriptures, the purpose of earthly marriage is to reflect the love of God for the church and the church's love for their God. And so it's an object lesson, like all the things that happen in your life and in mine, they are there to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of marriage. You will not be married forever and ever and ever to your spouse. Some of you are thankful that that's the truth, right? That you just don't want to applaud when I say that because you're sitting next to that person. There'll be some discussions later on, I'm sure. Others of you are disappointed because you've got a good, solid relationship with your spouse and God's brought you so far and the thought of not being married. When I first heard that, not being married to my wife, in the life to come, it was depressing. Janet and I were both depressed. And then we had an epiphany and realized, hey, there's more to this life than even what's most precious to us, which is marriage. The marriage giver is the one who's most important to all. So Jesus clarifies that the purpose of marriage is temporal for this time. Verse 36, where they cannot die anymore because they're equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. See, Jesus is showing them that they are in error because Moses did teach about the resurrection. In the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. In Exodus chapter 3, this is what's being referenced here, the burning bush incident. And that's what Jesus is affirming. Don't you think it's interesting that Jesus is giving credibility and credence to the fact that there actually was a bush that caught fire and was not consumed? (laughs) I mean, either Jesus is lying to us and winking as he's saying that, Or Jesus is helping us understand that there really was a man named Moses who really faced this strange sight, who really went over to see it out of curiosity. Curiosity killed the cat. Satisfaction brought him back. Went over to see this sight, the burning bush, and was called by God to deliver a nation. And everything that happened as a result of that burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 is true. The 10 plagues with the Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the parting of the Red Sea, with such tremendous detail, where it says there's a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the left and dry ground in between. All of those things came forth as a result of the burning bush. And what also is interesting is that Jesus affirms the creation account. Matthew chapter 19, he talks about in the beginning, God created them male and female. Male and female, he created them from Genesis chapter 1. 
And then in Luke chapter 11, Jesus talks about Abel. You know, Cain and Abel, that story about Cain and Abel, people wonder, well, there wasn't a literal Adam and there wasn't a literal Eve. Then I guess at some point it had to start. So I guess Cain and Abel came out of nowhere. Because you can't have Abel and you can't have the story of Abel and Cain without an Adam and Eve because they were the children of Adam and Eve. And so we have Jesus in Luke chapter 11 affirming the reality of the existence of Abel and the creation account in Matthew chapter 19. And in John chapter 6, we have Jesus talking about the manna, that God gave them manna from heaven. You know, that amazing flatbread supernaturally made, that they were told not to gather more than they needed, and when they did, it rotted. But when they gathered up twice as much as they needed the day before the Sabbath, because they were supposed to rest on the Sabbath, it didn't rot. It was supernatural in nature. And the teaching there is presented for us to understand that you should take a day of rest. And the day of rest, the ability to take a day of rest, hinges upon our trust in the power of God to provide even though it doesn't look like he's going to provide. Can I get an amen for that? Because otherwise we have an inconsistency on These days when they gathered more, it rotted. But on this particular day when they did it, the night before the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath, it didn't rot the next day. And so we have Jesus affirming the reality of the manna, the story of the manna. And then if we look at Luke chapter 17, look at all these other things that Jesus affirms. Would you look with me at Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 26. These are just samplings. We could go elsewhere in the scriptures as well. In Luke 17, 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Wait a second. All right, I'll swallow this Noah thing, but you want me to believe in this ark garbage? He entered the ark, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. What? Yes, Jesus is affirming the historical truth of a guy named Noah in the biblical account. Where else would Jesus have gotten that account? And the ark that Noah built, where else would Jesus have gotten that account? And the story of the flood that ruined the whole earth. You want to debate whether it was global or not? You're straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. The whole point is the power of God. That's the whole point. So Jesus very clearly affirming the story of Noah. Verse 28, Luke 17, likewise, oh, here we go. Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. This is Jesus affirming and giving credibility to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and their destruction. And there would be no Sodom and Gomorrah if there was not the set of circumstances that grieved the heart of God happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And so was there actually a place called Sodom and Gomorrah? Was there actually sulfur that came down and burned those people up as the judgment of God? I don't know. It really comes down to whether or not you agree with the authority of Jesus. Does Jesus have the right to speak on these things, or do you think you know more than Jesus? Now, don't get too bent out of shape about it, because there's only eternal significance based on what side of the fence you come down on. There's only eternal significance based on which side of the fence you come down on in that issue. Do you believe Jesus has the authority to speak on these issues or not? I mean, how much detail did Jesus believe about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and this account of Lot? And look what he says in verse 30. So will it be on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Wow. What happened to Lot's wife? She looked back because she wasn't trusting in the power of God. She wasn't being obedient to what God told her and her husband to do. She looked back, and the biblical account says that she was turned into a pillar of salt. Well, did that really happen? Isn't that fairy tale? I don't know. Do you have a problem with what Jesus is saying or not? I mean, I'm okay with what Jesus is saying. Many of you are okay with what Jesus is saying. You know, you don't have to believe everything Jesus says. Or do you? If you think you're smarter than Jesus, okay. Uh, You want to go to bed at night believing that? Okay, I'm not going to jam it down your throat, but I sure would like God to touch your heart, and Jesus would too. Interesting. We have Jesus again and again affirming the Old Testament scriptures and Story after story after story after story that we have 66 books in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and it's all about the power of God. And it's all about the authority of Jesus. It's all about this God who has revealed the culminating pace de resistance, the culminating focus of all of the Bible from the beginning to the end. The whole purpose is to point to Jesus Christ. And what Jesus does here with the Sadducees is stellar because he helps them understand, yes, I do have the authority because of who I am. And if only you listened to me, your life would be different. And the more things change, the more they stay the same, because in your life and in mine, it really does come down to what we believe about the authority of Jesus Christ. Does Jesus say what he means and mean what he says? Are the Scriptures reliable, and do not the Scriptures present to us this understanding of God being a God of the living, not of the dead? This is what's presented here when Jesus says, but that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. The idea is that he continued to be the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. The idea is that those guys were alive after they died because by faith, They follow the same God that you and I follow by faith if we're followers of Jesus Christ. 
And so the Sadducees, because they focus on the letter of the law and strained at gnats, swallowed camels, did not understand what was taught in the Scriptures. If they really studied the Scriptures, they would have understood that the resurrection is taught even from Moses, even though they believed that they followed Moses and they studied the teachings of Moses because it wasn't overtly taught. There are things in the Scriptures that are covertly taught. And that's why I want to say that a casual reading of the Bible will never lead you to a deep appreciation of God. And what you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. And that's why you owe it to yourself. You owe it to your family. You owe it to this church. You owe it to your church. You owe it to the nation. You owe it to the Lord himself to make a deep study of the Word of God, the ongoing practice of your life. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit couragematters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.